0: welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so, including technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Hello, this is Chinchilla Squeaks. I was away last week, traveling around on appalling internet. I couldn't really release anything, but I'm back with quite a bunch of interesting things I wanted to share with you. A uh, little bit of a good mix bag because I was on holiday. There's a few different things from the usual tech focus this time around. So let's jump right in. So this was reported in a few different places. I'm going to refer specifically to the record by Catalin Kipanu, who I do believe used to work somewhere else and have referenced them a few times. Twitch source code and business data leaked on 4chan. This was mostly um, kind of in uh, opposition, in protest, I suppose, to the fact that uh, Twitch is doing nothing thing about this uh, constant problem with hate raids, coordinated bot attacks, posting hateful and abusive content in Twitch chats that have been plaguing a lot of the streamers over the summer, basically. Um, and they kind of determined that Twitch is doing nothing about this. So they... A released code from 6,000 internal Git repositories. Um, I don't know how. This is kind of one of the interesting things, how they did it. They also claimed this is only part one, and there may be more to come. It included twitch.tv, um, the website, the various clients, proprietary SDKs, um, also um, payout reports as well, um, and some sensitive information around some user identities and authentication mechanisms as well. So quite a lot of very important information. Whether this will um, change anything not uh, remains to be seen. And I think this is something that Twitch have responded with, kind of saying that um, the problem that the, the uh, exposer was complaining about is not something that's easily solved, uh, which is sort of partially true, but... Um, Yeah, I don't know if this is a solution, but it's interesting to see that this can happen. And I guess there are people on the inside, maybe, who are willing to kind of leak this um, because they also disagree with company policy. I don't know. That's a lot of conjecture, of course. But interesting to see that there could be a tactic used in the future. From Twitch, which is a fairly modern technology, we're going to go back to something quite quite old something quite quite different, the landline, the copper landline. This is an article specifically on wired.co.uk uh, from Natasha Bernal called This is How the Landline Fund Will Die. And UK, uh, British telecom or telecommunications engineers are racing to get rid of the landline network by 2025 and basically put everything down the cable networks. Anyone who's followed me for a while knows I'm always fascinated with um telecommunication networks. Uh, my grandfather was somewhat involved with them and they always interested me. And and but a lot of the phone network is still through copper wires. In fact, uh, I do believe I think in Germany, I'm not sure if this is just us or if this is common, we get our phone service service through the cable network. So I suppose that means it's already being replaced. Uh, and they're attempting to do it in the UK. Um it's interesting because there are a lot of businesses that are still using old connections and not really thinking of it. I suppose just think of it as a landline, not really how it gets connected to anything, and that obviously during the pandemic it was more widely used for people to stay in touch with each other. So you know, it's actually how a lot of the networks still make a reasonable amount of money. There's um, actually quite staggering statistics here. The open reach, which is the kind of infrastructure engineers behind the telecommunications network in the UK. Looks after 192 million kilometers of cable, 110,000 green cabinets with the cabinets where connections go into, 4.9 million telephone poles and junction boxes. So that's actually one for every six people, I think, telephone cables. Um, and this is a cost of $12 billion. To roll out fiber to the premises, and this is something a lot of countries are trying to do actually, um, and they are aiming for 25 million by the end of 2026, and have done 5.5 with four years to go. I don't know; seems sort of reasonable. Um, but the the challenge they face is. Uh, they don't want to try and run two networks in parallel. They want to kind of keep customers up to date as they come on and off the network, I suppose. Uh, and they've been doing a lot of trials and switching people over to VoIP connections. It's actually interesting because generally when you use a VoIP connection, you find the connection is better. When I have once or twice use my phone, or even on my mobile, actually, to call someone, you realize how inferior the quality is to a VoIP call. Um, and and phones can do this, they switch between two different networks. Obviously a very different network to a copper wire network, but I don't think I've used an actual landline phone in such a long time. If I did, I would probably be quite surprised by how they sound. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it's interesting to basically know that these sorts of networks are still in place, Um, that they are still an essential part of communications networks, and that, yes, that people are trying to replace them and and working hard to do so. Um, And whether that's good or bad, I guess, is a a matter of opinion, but it's happening. Okay, that's actually enough tech for this this episode. I am going to focus on a couple of games-related posts that uh, came I guess because I was on holiday, I was catching up with a few sort of non-worky uh, readings, and this is one of them. This is one first from Board Games um, by Sarah, that's why I know. Um, and this is tools for adding emotion into um, games, into specifically board games, but also role-play games. I think probably a bit of both, actually, in different levels of um of games, uh, it combines thoughts on some um, videos from a different company, but I, this came up on my thread i 'm not 100 percent sure where I got it from and she talks about rhythm, anticipation arts, discovery, role play, loss aversion, consequences, permanent scarcity, and endowment effect. And I think if if you are keen gamers, you can think through many games that have at least elements of those in them. Uh, role play is, sort of depends a little bit on the, the player's rhythm. Definitely, I've often reflected on the fact that there are games sometimes that feel like they're very rushed at the end and everything kind of escalates at the end. These kind of engine builder type games. And is that good or is that bad? Um loss vision when you lose things in kind of player versus player games or other for other reasons uh, just how that could feel that is definitely an emotion um scarcity scarcity is is definitely an aspect that you feel a lot in games you never have quite enough to to do what you want and so it was a nice summary of of these things you can inject to make a good game make a game that people remember Um, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I have finished reading and I've kind of been going through my notes from the building blocks of uh, game design from Jeff Engelstein. And there's a co-author, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And kind of collating a lot of these very mechanical explanations of mechanics and then how you can interweave them with um, what actually the the feelings people get when they play a game. Uh, And some do this better than others, of course. Uh, It's not always about theme. Some very abstract games can instill strong emotions in you. And yeah, I wanna, I'm interested to see how you can tie these aspects together. Like something easier to do in role-playing, of course. Well, or maybe not. I don't know. You know, Suspending the suspension of disbelief and, and getting people to sort of feel connected to what they're doing. Anyway, have a read if you're a game designer or just interested in some of the theories behind them. And those videos that they're based upon. Now these are not new posts. Um, again, I just went down some rabbit holes, <laughs> and this is uh, two different interviews with uh, Morton Monrad Pearson of Automa Factory. One on Diagonal Move, and one on Dicebreaker, both from uh, last year. And uh, this gentleman, uh, Morton, is a uh, worked with a couple of others to design. Solo versions for many games, including Wingspan, Scythe, um, and a few others. Uh, actually, maybe Blitzkrieg. I, I think I was actually. I think Blitzkrieg is someone else, but um, there's a couple of people that work together. Maybe it's the same association. And I really loved the solo mode for Wingspan. One of my main issues with a lot of solo modes for board games is often you end up kind of playing against yourself, um, and that. I don't know, it can be a bit stressful and you can. it's hard to really kind of be balanced in, in, in many respects. And the way the Automa system works is it has a very clever kind of AI and you effectively just do what it tells you to do. You don't have to think, you just do things and then you react to them as the solo player. And this is one of the reasons I really like the system. I was interested to see um, some of the thought processes behind it. And um, Morton has actually, uh, you can find it in both of these posts because... Board Game Geek posts are not always very easy to find, very unmemorable links where he goes into a lot of detail about the process and the things he tries to accomplish in each case. And in both these interviews, he then kind of goes into some of the challenges that uh, were faced um, and the decisions they had to make and the changes they had to make based on those. And this is always fascinating. Any kind of creative process is always fascinating to get insights on. Um, I am working on a couple of games at the moment. I'm not sure if I'm planning a solo mode, but uh, if, I, if I do, I will um, definitely be looking at these to, <laughs> to, to plan how I do that. And finally, this is an article from The Guardian by Rachel Monroe. I'm a life coach, you're a life coach, the rise of an unregulated industry. I hover around uh, industries where you meet a lot of life coaches and I've often wondered when I've met them that why should I trust you to give me life advice? And that's not a criticism necessarily of that person, although there have been cases where I felt like you don't seem like you have enough experience in certain things to be giving me advice or someone else advice. Um... I do remember that uh, my wife also ended up uh, writing some biographies for some life coaches. And again, they had next to no experience and trying to make them sound important when they really weren't. And it seems, well, I'm not the only person. I think this goes to a slightly different world. I kind of feel like that a lot of life coaches are people who don't really know what to do next kind of thing. Maybe find themselves at a bit of a loose end and you think, oh, helping people sounds, sounds good which is, in many cases, a noble uh, aspiration. But this is an article that digs a bit more into some of the uh, definitely more provably um, cons or behind life coaches, um, and how a lot of them are basically pyramid schemes, a view of one person telling other people to tell other people to tell other people of how to improve themselves, and of course improving themselves is always telling other people how to improve themselves and on it goes until you get to a certain point where somebody at the very bottom thinks, you know, what am I getting out of this? Uh, and these are some quite expensive ones. And it's a completely unregulated industry in many, many countries. Um, people who seem to often give very, very vague sort of responses to, to problems. There's some actually quite interesting quotes in here. Um, Yeah, so firstly, here is a quote from a staff member of this life coach school. Brooke is marketing people who are kind of stuck, which sort of refers to what I just said, people who want more, but they don't really know what it is. And they're not really going to get an answer from here. Uh, Maybe they are, I don't know. Um, And when this particular school was hitting problems, the kind of responses they got were also very uh, much telling people, oh, no, the problem is the way you're thinking. There's not a problem with the course, not a problem with our governance, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is with the way you're thinking. This is often a common response. which is not altogether helpful either. So, yeah, um, it's, it's sort of you find yourself in one of these sticky situations where you're told that there is no problem, you are the problem, and in order to solve the problem, you need to think more like the problem. <laughs> so you, and I sometimes wonder with these sorts of things like, are they intentionally trying to trick people or is this just so genuinely the way they think? And I will admit, I think it's 50 50 or not 50 50 but split both ways in, in different measures. Um, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who claim that, uh, that it ends up being a little bit like therapy. And I have sort of experienced this myself where I've met with life coaches and they kind of get you to a certain point, but then you think, now what? They say things that are quite obvious and you kind of know, but what can you do about it? Um and it very much depends on the on the, the business, the, the organization that is running the coaching about what that next step might be. Um yeah, it's quite an interesting article, and I sometimes feel like I'm too skeptical when it comes to these sorts of things. And I guess I feel satisfied and vilified when, um, when I find out it's not just me. <laughs> and yeah, I wish that wasn't necessarily true, but it is, unfortunately. Okay, that was my links for the week. Um, As I've been away, there's not too much to report back on. I did a hands-on video, just gone on using Megalinter, a kind of combined tool for um, checking over code and, and text files and configuration files and all sorts of things to get them up to best practices. Uh, I've been working on my novel a little bit over the week public week as well getting that up to uh getting that into the kind of the final act of that um I have been working on a few blog posts and a whole bunch of things so yeah there's more there's some stuff coming very soon um I'm working on a gaming tools post. It's taking quite a bit of time to get through, but I'm getting there. I'll have the edited versions of um, my videos for the solo adventure very soon. I'm actually working with a separate editor for those, and I just saw first drafts, and the final draft should be ready quite soon. So you can look forward to that. Um, I won't be doing a solo adventure this week, because I'm going to the Essen board game fair, and I'm to be doing my own adventuring. Um, but there should be a, a few more things coming out of uh, for those various projects next week. Uh, so keep your eyes open for those as always if you've enjoyed the show please rate, review, share leave a comment, always welcome if you want to support in any way you can head over to christianchiller.com slash support, find ways to support with contributions with donations join my discord server, sign up for my newsletters, all are welcome and until next time thank you very much for joining me